This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the first new current affairs show for years on TV was launched, but did an hour of Patrick Gower get to the bottom of his issues? People know that I've got issues. I've covered most of them publicly, so I do need to share um, not just the spotlight with some other Junos, but, but with some issues that other Kiwis face as well. But before that, could a Loafer's Lodge type of tragedy strike in another of the unknown number of hostels around this country? Six years after the Grenfell Tower tragedy in the UK, we asked journalists there who investigated that what our media can now do to make it a lot less likely here. When I arrived down there, it was shortly before 3am this morning. The fire was still burning um, and, in fact, was uh, very well alight until I left at about half past four this morning. Uh, fire said that they did expect the fire to burn for some time, for, for several hours, um, as they were still trying to get it under control. They said it had reached the, the roofing area. Almost two weeks have passed now since the terrible news that lives had been lost at the Loafers Lodge Hostel in Wellington, in a blaze witnessed that night by RNZ News producer Denise Garland. And in the confusion and chaos of that night, a local fire chief told the media it was a once-in-a-decade fire, which gave people some idea of the seriousness of it, but somehow it still didn't quite adequately convey the horror of it. And it was only last Tuesday, more than a week later, that police formally released the names of the first three victims. In Parliament, Greens co-leader James Shaw last week said it was time for questions. Uh, What kind of country are we uh, where those people have so few options in life uh, but to live in substandard accommodation uh, with a reasonable chance of lethality? What kind of country are we where we we would not raise a building code because we're worried we might be accused of issuing a war on renters, on landlords. I, I think what kind of country are we where, you know, our, our firefighters uh, lack or are at risk of not showing up with the most basic of equipment to be able to f- uh, fight these uh, kinds of events? So those questions do need to be answered, uh, I think, uh, in the fullness of time. And asking those kind of questions of people in power is also, of course, the job of the media. Now, since the Loafers Lodge fire, we have learned a lot from reporters who have dug into it, some of it pretty worrying. For example, on the front page of Wellington's Daily The Post last Monday, Tom Hunt reported that Loafers Lodge had just one working ground floor exit after the main entrance was locked shut due to damage in the days before the fire. And we've also learned that Loafers Lodge is just one of a growing network of hostels, motels and boarding houses housing some of New Zealand's most vulnerable and poorest people. But we don't even know how many of them there are. A parliamentary inquiry report into boarding houses cited MB and fire service databases, which suggested there were between 500 and 550 boarding houses, but that was done back in 2014. According to Stuff reporter Steve Kilgallen, the $300,000 cost of creating a national register was cited as a reason why it hadn't been done back in 2012. Journalist Bernard Hickey said the Loafers Lodge fire exposed our twin crises of inequality and housing, subjects he writes a lot about. Bernard Hickey said that he lived not far from Loafers Lodge for years and often wondered who lived there and what it was like to live there. But... Like most, I didn't have much insight into the nature and danger of life inside such a place. And Bernard Hickey's not alone in that among our journalists. But since the tragedy, our media have been talking to the people who are usually invisible in our media. For example, Loafers Lodge resident Chris 
told The Guardian's New Zealand reporter Tess McClure this. I've read online and on social media saying that this was a place for the vulnerable. I don't consider myself a vulnerable person. It's just at the moment, there's a struggle with housing. And Loafers Lodge catered for people who couldn't buy their own homes in the capital or even rent them from other New Zealanders who own them. After National Party leader Christopher Luxon this week signalled a rethink of his party's support for changes to allow more and denser housing to be built, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen said it was smart politics. How good is it that National is walking away from the stupid housing density rules? I mean, they should never have even promoted this idea in the first place. Though her panel guest at the time, political pundit Ben Thomas, cited Loafer's Lodge when he told Heather Duplessy-Allen this. Well, look, I think it was a good policy. Um, oh, we, do need, we, need, we need more houses. We oh, don't have ben. enough houses. But, it, well, Ben, it's not a good policy because normal people who own houses are not going to vote for this nonsense. We, we have nurses living in places like Loafer's Lodge. We need more houses. Yes, but the nurse, when she owns a house, or he, is not going to want to vote for us. Yeah, you don't have to tell me about the politics about it. I, I, I worked on the White Brown campaign for mayor. I, I know very much how, how the good burgers of Auckland feel about uh, their neighbours building high, high properties. Elsewhere on News Talk ZB this week, the local host in Wellington, Nick Mills, asked the Wellington City Missioner Murray Edridge how accommodation can become healthier, safer, and more affordable in Wellington, especially for those who are most vulnerable. And the property developer Ian Castles added this. You know, if we keep growing poverty the way we are, then we're all stuffed. There's no, there's no um, quarantine. You can't live away from that and ignore it. We, we are as healthy as our society is, and if it's not working, it's not working. Like, And it's definitely not working. No, right. it's, it's not working at all. Like it's, it's, um, we're just, people are coming off the back of the train and just, we're just ignoring it. And also this week, an episode of the daily podcast The Detail devoted an entire episode to the safety of denser housing and pointed out that RNZ's Phil Pennington had investigated this for RNZ. So what happens is that the government goes, we want to intensify housing to uh, meet the housing crisis, and they pass that all under urgency, right? So the floodgates were opened, but it seems as though they didn't really check downstream what was going on in terms of fire. We still have to determine how much official advice there was about fire, but what I'm hearing is that there wasn't a lot. Now, the day after the fire at Loafers Lodge last week, RNZ's Phil Pennington told Morning Report what some of the firefighters had told him after the horror of confronting that blaze. One of them said to me last night, I wonder if this is our Grenfell moment. A reference to the Grenfell Tower disaster in which 72 people died in a fire in London in 2017. Now, the circumstances of that were very different to Loafers Lodge, but both disasters raised big questions about the adequacy of social housing provision and the response, or lack of it, to safety concerns of people living there and the capability of the emergency response. And in the UK, the role of the media, both before and after the Grenfell Tower disaster, has also been examined in the years since then. And that was the sound of the veteran British Channel 4 News presenter John Snow being confronted by angry Grenfell Tower residents when he turned up there to report on the tragedy back in 2017. Now later that year, John Snow told a conference of media people this about that moment. We are all in this hall major players. We can accuse the political classes for their failures, and we do, but we're guilty of them ourselves. 
we are too far removed from those who lived their lives in Grenfell and who, across the country, now live on amid combustible cladding, the lack of sprinklers, the absence of centralised fire alarms and more revealed by the Grenfell Tower. Well, some who did know about that and did reveal it before and after the fire and are still doing it now are the journalists at a specialist magazine and website called Inside Housing. Among them was Sophie Barnes, who said that they tried to get the national media interested in the problem of fire safety and social housing long before the Grenfell Tower disaster. She said what was reported as a horrific one-off at Grenfell Tower was actually a horrific example of a much wider problem. This almost kind of fixation really on getting rid of these regulations, too much regulation, it stifles innovation. And when it comes to housing and safety and fire safety, it seems crazy. Well, the sixth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower tragedy is coming up next week, and Sophie Barnes is now an investigative reporter for one of the UK's biggest national newspapers, The Daily Telegraph. But her colleague Peter Apps is still at Inside Housing, he's now its deputy editor, and he's still covering the inquiry into Grenfell Tower, which isn't expected to end until 2024. Last year, Peter Apps published Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen, a book described by the Times in London as a forensic indictment of the construction industry and its regulators. So what advice does Peter Apps have for our media trying to find the true meaning in a tragedy here, which could be a warning of others to come? You get a kind of low probability event like this or what I presume has happened in Wellington. But those come from a set of circumstances which make it possible. But it's likely that If that's possible in that one block, it's likely to be possible in others as well. It has to ask questions about the systems of prevention and protection that are supposed to prevent these sorts of incidents happening and and how robust they are, certainly in the UK, as as that kind of has been unpicked by by what we've written, what others have written, and by the the inquiry, you see this failure to to maintain basic protections at a number of levels. And once you've got that, then you can have a low probability event like this take place. Sometimes people sort of say that in the the, the days and weeks immediately after an event like this, then, you you know, you you can't politicise it. You've got to just sort of, it's a tragedy. You've got to mourn first and then talk about the reasons afterwards. And I, I think that that's a mistake, to be honest, from the media's perspective because there's a short period when people are listening and when they care and that that short window will close and if you're not talking about the things that need to change at that time you're going to find that you're talking about them at a time when nobody's listening to you. Your colleague Sophie Barnes for example did epic um, requests for official information writing to hundreds of local authorities for the same information is that the level of inquiry you have to go to to really build up a picture of where the risks are and what's working and what isn't? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know what sort of freedom of information laws exist in New Zealand, but we do have a structure in the UK by which you can get information out of public bodies. It's quite laborious and uh, building up data is is important in proving this this idea that we were talking about just now, that this isn't just a one-off and actually is a product of an environment where lots of homes are unsafe, it's, a, it's an important role the media can play. Well, in the wake of the, the tragedy here in Wellington, we've now learned that there are more than 500 such boarding houses or hostels around the country, but we've discovered no register, no common set of standards. What advice would you give to our journalists that want to look into this and really inform the public what is out there in terms of social housing? 
a sadly familiar story, really. I mean, the, the, the history of fire disasters in the UK going back a long time before Grenfell, they, they do always seem to take place in homes for the, the, the people with the least choice about where they live. Yeah, there's a fascinating excerpt from a recent Inside Housing piece I found online about a building that you'd reported on earlier as, as not being up to scratch. And when Inside Housing visited the buildings later, there were some signs of improvement, but cigarette butts litter the windows. There's the smell of tobacco smoke in the air. At least one of the doors from the drying room to the main corridor doesn't close by itself. Panel doors on electricity boxes are made of tatty plywood, big gaps in the walls. So... Would you advise journalists to do this, to say, actually, we will go there, places that say they're going to be improved, we will go there, we will check? Yeah, absolutely, if you, if you can, if you can get down there. I mean, like, there, there's often that gap between the, you, you'll go to the, the landlord of the organisation and a press office and they'll give you assurances about how seriously they take safety and you can test that and speak to the people who are in those buildings and, and ask them how they feel and whether when they complain about things it's, it's taken seriously or not. I think that that's absolutely a job that the media can do. Yeah, and when the Grenfell disaster happened, some of the media were a bit shocked to find residents really resented them and felt that they hadn't been interested in them before, possibly had literally ignored newsworthy things they were trying to say about the safety of their buildings. John Snow, for example, veteran broadcaster on Channel 4, was really shocked by this and has later said, look, it was proof to me if we needed it that journalists are disconnected from the way that people in social housing live. Do you agree with him and his conclusion about that? I mean, I think in the immediate aftermath of the fire, the community were obviously in in such a state of trauma and devastation. And, you know, the UK media is pretty ferocious, will pursue stories and doesn't always treat people very well. That's going to create hostility towards the media in general. You know, but I, I think sometimes these kind of differences between people can be overstated. When I've spoken to people who live in buildings, not just Grenfell, but other buildings, social housing blocks with um, fire safety issues, I find that for the most part, they, they want people to listen to them and want people to talk and understand. And I think you find, you know, actually your background and your, your outlook on life is maybe a lot less different from them than you think. Probably, yeah, we don't, as a society, pay enough attention to people who are struggling. And, and actually, when you kind of go there as a human being and, and you want to kind of understand and listen. I'm sure the sort of journalists listening to this who've done kind of similar things in New Zealand would say the same. I, I read that the, the final report of the Grenfell Tower inquiry won't actually be published until 2024, seven years after the event. Yeah, I mean, it's taken an extraordinarily long time. There's still hope that there's going to be criminal prosecutions, um, but none of those will come. And, until the inquiry report has been published and been analysed by prosecutors and then the criminal trial start, and they, they, they would take a long time as well. So it, it means the people who've suffered the fire are kind of locked into this decades-long legal processes before they get closure. You know, in some ways, the inquiry's done a good job of exposing this story of, you know, systemic failure. But six, seven years is, is an extraordinarily long time to have to wait. And, and finally, uh, Peter, we don't have in New Zealand a, a publication quite like Inside Housing, just with this real focus on this one area with expert journalists, which comes into its own when something like Grenfell happens. But seeing as we don't have that in New Zealand, would you urge media companies here to at least put a, a senior reporter on this and allow them to follow the story? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things I'd say, given what you're saying about this fire, we had a fire in 2009 in the UK, a, a building called Lacknell House, which killed six people, three of them children. And the story wasn't really followed up, to be honest. But the, the issues that 
caused the Lacanal House fire was so similar. And it's how I open my book, Show Me the Bodies, with, with an account of the Lacanal House fire. It's supposed to kind of make people think they're reading about Grenfell. And then they realise they're actually reading about a fire that happened eight years before. If journalists in the UK had been able to get under the skin of that Lacanal House fire and, and expose what, what the, the, the lessons were, we might not have had the second catastrophe, which was much worse. You know, as bad as what's happened in Wellington is, you now have the opportunity to prevent that happening again or prevent it happening in an even worse fashion. That's something that the media can contribute. Yes, absolutely. Newspapers should look at uh, giving the reporter the space to stay with this story over over the next few months and even years as the the situation and the details emerge because they, they, they won't have yet. It will take time. If the media is patient enough, there's probably a story there that matters a great deal. That was Peter Epps, the deputy editor of the UK journal Inside Housing, who has for six years now been covering the Grenfell Tower tragedy and the official investigations and the inquiry into it, which is still ongoing. And Peter is also the author of the recently published account of all that called Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. This weekend, readers of newspapers and significant news media websites will have noticed a fair amount of backslapping in the form of prominently placed stories and supersized adverts drawing attention to their successes and those of their stablemates in the annual Voyager Media Awards. Though those same stories usually don't mention much, or at all, the gongs picked up by rival media organisations and their journalists. Likewise, anyone following individual journalists on social media this weekend will have found the feeds of many clogged with expressions of congratulations or commiserations, maybe the odd gripe or two about inconsistencies in judging, and lots of posts about hangovers. But on the night before the morning after, there was also an announcement at Saturday's ceremony that journalists focused on business and economics would have really welcomed a $2 million endowment to create the Brian Gaynor Business Journalism Initiative. Now, this comes from the Milford Foundation, the charitable arm of Milford Asset Management, of which Brian Gaynor was a founder. And also for years, he was the writer of incisive columns in the NBR, the New Zealand Herald, and more recently, subscription-based outlet Business Desk, which Brian Gaynor also backed financially and editorially until he died just over a year ago after a short illness. Brian Gaynor's wife Anna Gibbons says that the new initiative is a way to honour Brian's life, his devotion to public disclosure and high-quality analysis, and news coverage of business and keeping the markets honest. Now, this is a significant sum to boost business journalism, and the first applications for the funds will be called for as soon as August, according to the organisers. So who and what are they actually looking to fund? Well, we'll look into that on Media Watch next week, when the Media Awards, by the way, keep on coming. And next Thursday, it's the New Zealand Radio Awards. So stand by for more backslapping stories and ads in your media in the days ahead. Last week, the government presented a budget that wasn't quite the election year lolly scramble that many pundits had predicted. And in this week's Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Mark Leishman last Wednesday here on RNZ National, I looked at how the media responded to that. And also to one man who was billed on TV as a middle-income concerned Kiwi, but who appeared to have political allegiances of his own. Steve was really keen on a tax cut. They call it the bread and butter budget, but to be honest with you... 
It's not going to help anybody with bread and butter. When they're standing at the supermarket aisle, with still no money in their pockets. On Midweek Media Watch, I also looked at a ruling from a media watchdog that's a bit of a warning about airing the grievances of people unhappy with agencies of state and a new movie that was panned in the Herald as the worst of the year already. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. And it turns out that's not the only movie lately about great marketing triumphs of corporates who crank out consumer goods. And last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, we also looked at the yarn that burst into the headlines here last Monday, but nowhere else around the world, the plight of poor old Paura the Kiwi at Zoo Miami, which is now mortified about his treatment. I mean, if a Kiwi was seen, uh, you know, mishandling a bald eagle, um, I'm sure Americans here would not be nearly as polite and as kind and as understanding as the Kiwis have been. Turned out, though, not everyone was all that polite or forgiving in the case of Eagle versus Kiwi in Miami this past week. If you missed Midweek Media Watch this week, you can catch up with all that on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Just look for the title, Midweek Media Watch, Miami, Not Nice. If you turn the clock back between, say, 15 or 20 years, the top-rating national TV channels all wanted a slice of the current affairs action in prime time on weekdays. While TV2 was showing Shortland Street each night, TV1 had Homes, and after that, close up with Mark Sainsbury, after Prime TV paid a small fortune to lure Paul Holmes for a 7pm show to compete with it. And in 2005, TV3 launched Campbell Live to extend the range and reach of its news presenters, John Campbell and Carol Hirschfeld. But over time, serious current affairs issues in the evenings got watered down with the likes of The Story, The Project and Seven Sharp on at 7pm. But last Wednesday night, the Discovery-owned TV channel 3 launched the first new primetime current affairs show for years. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, this weekly effort seeks to blend current affairs and comedy. Hello Kiwis, I'm Paddy Gower and I have got issues on this show. We... So began Paddy Gower Has Issues. The show follows the eponymous Gower and his colleagues as they address their gripes, grievances and concerns about the way New Zealand works. Those embuggerances range from the major... Tonight my issue is with reading. We are failing at it. In fact, we actually suck. ...to the more minor... I had, a, I had an email in from um, a good friend of mine, Zoe, who's got a real issue with the music they play at the supermarkets. So, um... Most of the show's first episode was centred on those two issues. The meaty technical investigation into our falling reading rates and literacy education was carried out by Gower's co-host, the News Hub presenter Laura Tupo. She interviewed school teachers, principals, students and academics to build the case for classrooms to adopt a structured rather than balanced method of reading education. Now that might sound a little academic, but interviews like this one with some Mahurangi College students made the story personal. Why do you want to know how to read? It makes life simpler. I don't have to like ask my mum all the time, how do I spell this? Can you read this for me? Meanwhile, Karen O'Leary delved deeper than anyone ever has before into Countdown Spotify playlists on behalf of the aforementioned Zoe. Here she is speaking to a Danish academic who's spent 30 years studying the effects of music on shopping habits. 
What say I wanted to make someone buy mints? If I had them just hearing the word mints on repeat over and over and over again, do you think that would work? Um, that's a good question. O'Leary carried out an experiment to test that theory, sending three shoppers around a countdown with headphones playing different soundtracks, one happy, one sad, and one with the word mince on repeat. Unfortunately, there was a flaw in the operation. Karen, I have to know, did she buy mince? No, she... It turns out she's actually vegan. (laughs) The contrast between those two topics would be stark at the best of times, but it was made even starker by the show's unique structure, which saw Tupo and O'Leary's investigations spliced together in four sections across the course of its hour-long runtime. Now, that made for a few abrupt changes in tone, but the trend Transitions between light and shade were generally pretty smooth. Part of that is thanks to the show's host, who successfully mixed serious and silly in this segment, defending a now-aborted feral cat-killing competition for kids in North Canterbury. I need to be clear here. I am not against moggies or any house cats. I understand that your cat, Twinkles or Misty, is special. But feral cats are not special. They need to die. And that's why I have no issues whatsoever with the North Canterbury hunting competition, and I hope that Rotherham School gets its pull. In-house comedians Eli Mathewson and Courtney Dawson also helped navigate the shifts from literacy to levity, serving as a kind of younger, less muppety Statler and Waldorf. I've looked at the reading test. I even did some of it. I read four paragraphs from basketballer Stephen Adams' book and answered some multi-choice questions about it. And I'm sad to say it's actually kind of easy and our 15-year-olds should not be failing this. They should have the reading skills to pass this, and we are failing them uh, if they can't. Oh, Patty, it's cool you got to do the test. Did you get any uh, NCA credits for doing it? <laughs> when they weren't heckling Gower, the pair were charged with delivering comedic takes on the news of the day. Some of those jokes got a little spicy. The only other country to never have a reported case is China. <laughs> if Tokelau is only finding out about COVID now, then they're going to be really sad in three years when they find out that the Queen has died. <laughs> you know what? It's been a busy couple of years for COVID. I think that it deserves a tropical getaway. Yeah, I can't wait to see COVID with a tan. I'm old enough to remember when COVID infiltrating a Pacific island for the first time wasn't really a rich vein of comedy. Times have changed. Admittedly, international news with its bounty of horrors can make for tricky source material. A local news segment later in the show made for safer and arguably funnier ground. Patty. Well, it's been a huge week for big nerds because the new budget was announced. <laughs> they always give it a fun nickname. So what do they call this time? The government sold this as a bread and butter budget. Bread and butter. Bread and butter. Bread and butter. Bread and butter. Bread and butter budget. <laughs> oh, la dee da. Someone can afford butter. <laughs> all in all, a successful debut for what will be a weekly hour of Gower and Friends. I asked the show's host about some of the editorial decisions that went into the first episode and why it's taken so long to get current affairs back on primetime. Kia ora, Patrick, and welcome to Media Watch. It's actually really good to be here. It's 
a bit of a tonal tightrope, right? It's a mixture of the serious and the not-so-serious, the light and the dark. You've got the funny news segments, and then you have a technical investigation into literacy education. Like, how much thought did you guys put into how to balance those two shades? There's probably no way to put into words how long that took um, from the conception of the program, which was in about November last year, so for about six months. That's the format that we've got where we're going to mix um, serious investigations into big issues with some less serious investigations and some actual hard-out comedy as well. So the tonal tightrope is something I've got to live on and I'm, I've got my arms out balancing here in the in the studio. We believe that that's a model where people can get hard investigations, good conversations about issues facing New Zealand and have some fun as well. And we feel that's a way that we can, you know, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, make people sort of take their medicine with a little bit of sugar, I think is the saying. You know, we're competing with the likes of, we are literally competing with MasterChef Australia and the Celebrity Chase, you know, and we're competing with people's time, we're competing with TikTok and all this other stuff. If people watch the show, there's just been, we did an investigation into literacy in New Zealand, which is about as hard-hitting and as complex as as you can take on in terms of journalism. So we never considered a real hardcore, constant current affairs kind of programme like, like what people might have been used to seeing with 60 Minutes and Third Degree on TV3 or on Sunday or anything like that. Did that for about 15, 16, 17 years of journalism, being serious all the time, and the, and the last... Um, few years where I've, I've let my funny side come out. I've enjoyed a lot more, and so the show was always going to have a bit of that as well. Uh, yeah, I, I worked for Newsworthy. Do you remember yeah, Newsworthy? I, mem- I remember it well, and I loved it. Because that was the tonal tightrope possibly gone a bit wrong. You had <laughs> Sam Hayes doing a really serious news up front, and then you had David Farrier getting half naked and interviewing Colin Craig in a sauna. So that that was a tough balance to strike. Do you worry that you might... You know, be a bit newsworthy? Yeah, um, I don't actually. I think if I end up in a sauna um, with a politician and it becomes one of the most iconic interviews in the history of New Zealand television, um, then I'll be walking the tonal tightrope just fine <laughs> because David's interview with Colin Craig was was about it. And, and as for Samantha, um, she's actually going to be on the show this week. She's done okay. an investigation for us. And she'll, she'll be working with us, so, she, so she'll be back on that tonal tightrope. We just took the tonal tightrope that you guys had put away in the cupboard uh, and we tied it up again. The thing that you've done that is quite innovative is that it's not just Laura Tupo doing her very technical and quite well done investigation into literacy in one segment and then the comedy in another segment. They're interwoven across the show in a way that I'm not sure I've seen before. It hasn't been done before, that's a fact, um, because we looked at nearly every kind of show that was anything like this around the world, um, including in Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns three, which has got a whole lot of programs across CNN and everything. There's nothing like it there. Um, There's no other format when we looked in in similar countries like Australia, Canada, um, the UK and the US. Um, So that's something that we've come up with at three. TV3's got a long history in comedy. It's part of our DNA. We're the home of comedy in New Zealand television, and, and obviously we've had three news and news hub. So we've taken those two bits of DNA and we have literally mixed them, and the format that people see where we 
do literally have them as like strands of a rope, I guess, through the program. And I'm super proud of that. From now on, we're on a weekly turnaround, and we've got the we've got the same format to work with week in, week out. <laughs> so we only have a few days to do each time, but we believe that it can work. That's why we've done it, and people want to come on a journey with both stories, both the the hard news investigation or the more comedic one done by Karen O'Leary. The format has issues. Is that limiting in any way? Because it has to be stuff that you have issues on. Could it be that you're kind of limited to stuff that you're aggrieved over? Yeah, well, we did think about calling it personal grievance yeah. in terms of PG. Um, I'm just joking. We never did. But You now, never did that? No, no. It's no. actually pretty good. Yeah, Patrick it is quite, personal grievance. Yeah, it is good. Maybe they can. I might write that down afterwards and later on. And um, it, That's Media Watch intellectual property yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we don't want it to be grievance-based, and I'm, I'm putting quote marks around that because grievance is, you know, it's quite a harsh word. I prefer issues. But journalism is sometimes based around um, taking up someone's grievance and looking for answers for them. Um, but it's not going to limit us. You know, issues is a pretty um, broad word, and we're not going to be limited to just grievance um, journalism all the time. What we want is there to be a lot of solutions, and we saw solutions in the literacy story, there is a type of, of teaching literacy that is a potential solution. We saw the Minister for Education say that she wants us to adopt that in all our schools. That's a solution. So maybe, um, you know, it should have been called PG Has Solutions. But um, I don't know. It's too late to change it now. I'm really sorry that this revelation has come to you at this yeah, I wish point. I, I wish I'd done this interview last week or a few weeks ago. We could have really changed things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... What you're talking about there almost has uh, is almost reminiscent of Fair Go, right? Yeah, I mean, um, Karen's, um, as people would have seen, she took up a grievance about supermarket music on behalf of someone. It's an amalgam, amalgam of different um, ways of doing television journalism, and it's got a little bit of everything in it. So who decides the issues? Are they all just your issues, or are they being decided by a News Hub executive somewhere? We all decide. I mean, obviously, I've got a massive say. Um, our executive producer, John Bridges, um, has also got a massive say, and so does Todd Simmons, who's, who's one of the bosses at, at News Hub. Um, and so do the team that work on it. I'm sorry if this is kind of starting to turn into a boring answer, but, you know, we kind of work through them. I mean, they ultimately start with me, and, and lots of people come up to me and talk to me wherever I am about things that they think I should be investigating or things that are good ideas to investigate. And that's really the main start for me, the people that come up and talk to me. So they're mainly your issues. They will be mainly Patrick Gower's issues. Yeah, well, they'll be all of our issues. I mean, I I think if you came and saw the list of things we're doing, there'd be no no great surprises that they're things that are of concern to Kiwis. Can you give us some hints about what's coming up? No, I can't. Um, But they would be exactly the same as as anything that anybody who who wanted to brainstorm, you know, around our health system, around our education system, um, disparities in the economy, social issues, all of these sorts of things. Um, I don't want to give away what we're doing um, on a media show. That would be absolutely, absolutely stupid. Um, but I nearly did it. Um, <laughs> I nearly did it then, but I managed to resist. I think there, you know, if this show does get another hoon, um, which I hope it does, you know, we've got 20 shows to do um, this year. Um, there's more than enough issues to keep us going. I did a rough back of the sort of wheat bix packet estimation that on the issues that I think New Zealand are facing, we could have 17 
seasons. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. so, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're crossing live to Patrick Gower from his retirement yeah. village. <laughs> He's still solving them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like you, you're pushing an issue uphill every week, though. Is there something that feels a little bit daunting about that? You know, news shows they just get to go with whatever the breaking news of the day. It's swimming with the current. Yep, and it is daunting actually. But it's new and it's different and it's a challenge. That's why I can't resist it. Like, I, I actually really like that. That's what gets me up in the morning and gets me going. You were quite public when you quit the gallery that you burned out. You were, you, I think yeah. the sort of words were that you're almost losing your mind. You've got a lot on. You've got the documentary series that's still going and you've got this. Like, are you worried that you will, that you've taken on something that's too daunting? Nope. Um, I've taken on the job that, you know, one of these jobs that I, I reckon I was meant to do. The stuff that we're facing in New Zealand and trying to help and trying to um, make the country a little bit better. You know, I, I can think of nothing more that I'd want to be doing. You know, I had a mental breakdown in the gallery from overwork, stress and, you know, being in an incredibly negative environment. Um, I might be a little stressed with this job because I'm worried about doing a, a good job. Um, but it's incredibly energising to be out with the people of New Zealand and, and, and see and hear the things that they're worried about and try and, and, try and help them. So it um, doesn't mean that it's not thrilling as well. Is that economic environment one of the reasons why this is the first new current affairs show in quite some time? That it's, it's tough to make, it's expensive to make this kind of show. Yep, and um, I think it's been about seven years since we had Third Degree, which was our last iteration of this they they are tough to make um but for me the chance to to bring it back to tv3 was one of the main motivators just to get these kinds of stories like what people saw on on wednesday night literacy back into prime time back front and center investigations and like that after a seven-year break on the network we have to get this stuff back out there it's not just for tv3 it's not just for uh, it's not just for me. Um, they're they're actually for for the people that are out there, and and we've got one year to try and make it work and and show the bosses that people want to watch it. And it's my job now um, to get those people to watch it to make something good enough so that we can come back for another year with these kind of stories. Your your documentary show is called Patrick Gower on whatever weed. Yes. Uh, this one's called Paddy Gower Has Issues. Can you explain why <laughs> this is Paddy Gower and the other one is Patrick Gower? Well, this is actually a serious question because this goes to the heart of the marketing department at Warner Brothers Discovery, um, who believe that the use of Patrick for the documentaries and and Paddy um, for the show creates some differentiation uh, in the brands. Some so di- people approaching the show... <laughs> They'll be like, isn't this by the same guy that does Paddy Gower has issues? And then another person will say, no, yeah, but this de- is Patrick. But deep, this is the Patrick. But deep this in is their, Patrick Gower. Deep in their subconscious, you know, they'll be feeling something. And the documentaries that I do, which I'm still doing, by the way, a much, much deeper level of research, heavier investment of time and a heavier investment of skill in the directing and the cinematography. Um, so, you know, you know, the more formal name Patrick does fit quite nicely with them. <laughs> Being a company man at the moment, I yeah. can see you. <laughs> oh, no, you've done an admirable job for, for Warner Discovery. <laughs> Warner Brothers Discovery. Warner, Warner Brothers Discovery. I really apologise for getting that <laughs> no, wrong. Bad. Now, despite the title, you know, there's, there's actually, I was surprised by how little Patrick Paddy Gower was actually in the Paddy Gower hour. Yes. Um, you know, it was really a star term for Laura 
Tupo, Karen O'Leary. Yes. Uh, the comedians Courtney and Eli. Um, I'm, I'm happy to see the spotlight to people like you just mentioned. You know, Laura Tupo, um, you know, she's one of the great talents and reporters that we've got, and it was awesome to see her step up on a massive investigation. Karen O'Leary, it should be called Karen O'Leary on issues. I wouldn't be surprised if season two, if she takes over. There's... Because that has been a criticism of some of your documentaries, you know, a bit too much Patrick Gower front and centre yeah. every so often. Was that something that you were wary of there? No, I'm not wary of putting myself front and centre. People know that I've got issues. I've covered most of them publicly, so I do need to share um, not just the spotlight with some other Junos, but, but with some issues that other Kiwis face as well. Um, and people are going to see a lot of me. I've been in the Hawke's Bay filming a story last week. I've been in Gisborne filming something yesterday. Um, I'm back out there. There'll be plenty of Gower in that hour as we go on. Um, but it's going to be awesome to share the stage with, like I said, Sam Hayes is coming up this week. A whole lot of other News Hub journalists are going to be coming through as we go. And, we all uh, have issues. Yeah, everyone's got, anyone who's got issues is welcome. This is just part of a larger media round for you, and you have to go pretty personal in some of these. You're personal with the promotion of the documentaries. You're personal when you left uh, the gallery about the mental health issues you had there. Is that hard to constantly go into that stuff? Uh, it is at times, and it's, um, you know, I mean, I've made those choices. I made a documentary about being an alcoholic. I was upfront. And I had been up front and open that I had a, a, a mental breakdown after working in the gallery. Um, these are hard things to talk about, you know. And when you've got your name on a show, like, that's... I, I know that for some people that would be like a dream and different things. But, you know, when you look up at it, it's pretty horrifying um, at times. You do get a really, really... Um, I'll be honest, you do get a really, really big ego in this kind of job. I've suffered from that as well, um, having a big ego and um, thinking, you know, that, that you're the greatest and all that sort of stuff. And none of that really is going to help me here. What I've got to do here is is, is focus on getting these issues out and, and, and doing these and doing these stories in a good way. What's going to help me here is keeping keeping calm um, and, and forgetting about all of that sort of extra jazz and and focusing on on doing a good job of the issues for the the people that decide to come on the program and 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 share their stories, um, you know I've got to keep all of the ego and all of that sort of stuff out to one side and keep really calm and and make the show a success and ensure that it's renewed for me and the team and the and the people that watch it. Um, so yeah, um, it it is tricky, um, you know, and and I'm, I'm a professional and I'm, I'm I'm good at it, but it doesn't mean it's not hard for me. It doesn't mean I have to spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to handle it and how I'm going to deal with it, um, you know. And, and, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't, don't know if I've quite answered the question there, but it's, 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 it's hard. I mean, some people would get a kick out of talking about themselves. Yep. And I think uh, I probably would. Yeah. Do you, do you and, not? And definitely at times you do, you know, and, and it's also, it's, 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 it's a double-edged sword, though, if I'm honest, you know. There's, there's thrilling parts of it, and it's, like, it is incredibly proud when I see my name literally in lights on my show like there is no question about that I'm so proud for everything that I've achieved and I know how hard I've worked for it I've got the battle scars to prove it I'm proud for my family and my friends and everybody that supported me but at the same time you know once that switches off and there's all of the pressures of dealing with it and stuff like that and, and your own ego and 
um, the worries about whether the show is going to get renewed and everybody's going to have their jobs again and all that sort of stuff. Like there's, you know, there's sometimes when you wish you, that you didn't have that as well. As and sometimes you just want to like go into a shack in the wilderness and yeah, as long as not it ha- have Media Watch asking you questions. Oh no, as long as I could, as long as I could get Media Watch on a Sunday morning, that'd be good. Yeah, I think we or- are available in all places. <laughs> if, you, if you check the AM frequency, we should be yeah. there. Thank you very much, Patrick Gower. Thank you very much for having me on Media Watch, Hayden. That was Patrick Gower, host of the new current affairs show Paddy Gower Has Issues, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about the tricky business of blending current affairs and comedy in prime time. Paddy Gower Has Issues screens every Wednesday for the next 20 weeks on 3 at 7.30pm and it's available after that on the on-demand service 3 Now. And you'll also find clips of the show on TikTok and other social media platforms if a whole hour of Gower on TV is a bit too much for you. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch on nights. And then back again at the same time next weekend with Media Watch here on RNZ National.